miss the show no worries we've got you covered on point and on the podcast tonight we'll talk about how identity politics has left the uh, united states anything but united and it's played on both sides of the border the question is you know as joe biden goes about uniting the states will the identity politics stop we'll talk about a big trial coming up on tuesday alec manassian he stands charged with several counts of first degree murder it's not a question of if he killed those people that day. He's admitted it. It's whether he'll be found guilty or will he get off on criminal um, because of mental health issues. And then, of course, we'll talk to Michael Barrett because what do you know? All the documentation about speaking engagement fees paid to the Trudeau uh, family just have vanished. Just like that. Let's get talking. We need to make sure we are controlling the spread of COVID-19 in the coming months so that when vaccines get here, we will be able to act quickly to protect all Canadians. And to be very clear, if you catch COVID in the coming days and weeks, a vaccine won't help you or your family. Good news, the vaccine's close. Bad news, don't expect to get it anytime soon or have a plan to get it delivered. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 9th. Hope you had a terrific weekend. It was, uh, it was simply amazing. It was um, sanity saving weather. I mean, what a difference it does make. As certainly as we try to get some freedom, it sure does make it a little bit more bearable because the cloud of COVID and of course the never ending election of next door, you know, it just lifts your spirits. I mean, I don't know anybody who wasn't on the golf course. My husband played four days in a row, but it was hard to fault him because who gets to play at this time of year? But yeah, perfect, amazing weekend and still going. I will take it. But we uh, wake up today to some good news that um, oddly didn't come out last week, but a vaccine that uh, Donald Trump promised was close. Well, apparently it is very close. And the timing of this announcement is just spectacular, you know? But, you know, it's not Russian-made, which is good. And it is one that Canada procured, of course, made by Pfizer. This is good. And this is a biotech company owned by a husband-wife team out of Germany who have uh, spent their lives trying to find cures for cancers and dissecting the genetic makeup of different cancers. So you can just, uh, you know what it's like at the dinner table at their house. A lot of big words, but they now hopefully may be about to give us our freedom and they're about to get a lot of money for it because Pfizer was valued at $4.6 billion a year ago. And as of Friday, the market's closed at $21 billion. And, it, and, and it's not even like a sure thing that this is going to be the one, but nonetheless, not a bad payday. I don't know if this would have reversed Trump's endgame, but I will just say he was laughed at. He was the crazy one for saying a couple of weeks ago that a vaccine was very, very close. And now all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> here we are celebrating the great news. But let us take a look at the news because I think we really have to measure our expectations here. This is still months away from being available, assuming this is the one. And it's also the most complicated of all the vaccines because 
It has to be refrigerated at a very specific temperature. And I heard this on Friday, and I'll play it for you, but Trudeau himself said on Friday, and of course it got ignored because everyone's watching all things south of the border, that we don't have a system or the complex refrigerated needed to store it. We know that some of the first vaccines to come out have uh, extremely high degrees of logistical support necessary. Things like freezers that can keep the vaccines down at uh, minus 80 degrees Celsius, for example, which uh, doesn't lend itself to mass distribution uh, in, uh, in you know, pharmacies across the country, for example. But later vaccines uh, that will be arriving will be able to do that. So we have to have a very sophisticated plan uh, to be able to roll out vaccines the right way. Mm-hmm. Question is, do we have a plan? I mean, maybe Loblaws can lend us those uh, very expensive fridges we bought for them, right? But it is more than that because you got to get this to the masses and it's going to be very hard. And I don't know what the plan is. I don't get the sense there is a plan. And not one reporter asked that question of Trudeau today. Like, how are we getting this delivered to Canadians en masse? You know, who gets it first? How far back in line is Canada? How much more can we get if we only have 20 million doses? And in this vaccine, each person needs two doses. And we've got a population of 35 million. So look, we're nine months into this pandemic. And vaccine procurement has not been scrutinized because don't forget, this government will not allow any committee hearings into their handling of this. So we don't really know what the Liberal Party is doing. They're just telling us good news, a vaccine is coming. Okay, great. What about the timeline? What, what are we doing for vaccine deliver? How is it going to be delivered? These things matter. Why? Oh, gee, well, we've already failed to get rapid testing in place in time. We're not tracing, barely. We still haven't shut borders. We've got planes coming in from Europe every single day from hot zones with COVID cases on them. How is that still a thing? You know, we have been caught flat-footed by this virus every single step of the way. So I don't think it's asking too much on what really should be a good news day. You know, what's the plan? We should have some of that. Because I heard a couple of comments from Trudeau and Christine Elliott. And the feeling I get is that the provinces are going to rule this out. Uh-huh. Yeah? Really? Well, I hope they do a better job than the flu shot that no one can get. You know, or the testing that takes days to get results back, in my case, 28 days. So I don't get the sense that that's a good idea. It sounds like a disaster in the making. Because mass vaccinations on this level cannot be done by pharmacists and doctors. They can hardly keep up now. And especially this particular vaccine, because you need two doses exactly 21 days apart, and you have to keep it at that very specific temperature. And that requires planning. And I don't get the sense that anybody in the federal government decided to plan for those kinds of things. And I don't know if you caught it. I was watching uh, 60 Minutes last night, and one of the reports profiled their their vaccination response. And what they're doing, they've created a special military operation called Warp Speed. And so they've developed teams of military experts. And they're going to be creating, right now, for months, they've been creating a response to get 300 million doses to Americans within 24 hours of an approval on a vaccine. But when you hear the guy talk about it, it is rife with challenges, including, you know, what the refrigeration issues, which they've apparently started already getting containers and refrigeration and all that. They're miles ahead of us. 
and they got to deal with people who are going to refuse to take it because they're scared. They got to make sure the vaccine doesn't spoil. So if they're going that route, you know, and everyone's criticizing Donald Trump for how bad a job he did. I mean, we're just going to dump it on the provinces and hope to God it goes well. You know, and then you have to keep in mind, we came late to the game in getting vaccines. So even if this one's improved, then we have to wait for the United States, the UK, even India. Other countries ordered it ahead of us. So they get the shipments before us. And we've got access to 20 million, but at two doses each, you do the math, that's 10 million. So how much longer do we have to wait to get more? So look, all exciting that this is a good news story, but... I really don't think it's asking much that the prime minister measures expectations on how long we may be looking at living the way we are now, because we don't have a vaccine. This thing may peter out. Who knows? But I'd also like to know if maybe someone in charge is actually doing any planning, because I don't get the sense that they are, certainly not at the federal level, because it's easier to dump it on the provinces. And then you see what's going on around the GTA, and all the, you know, health officials and the political, you know, people, they're all pointing fingers in every direct, different direction. you got Peel health officials saying, oh, let's shut everything down. you got the mayor of Brampton and Mississauga, you know, asking people to do their part. But, of course, there won't be penalties if you break restrictions. And then you got Toronto, which we're supposed to ease restrictions in Toronto Saturday. And now we're being told tomorrow we could get much harsher restrictions, maybe shutdowns. And then the mayor admitting... But no matter how many rules he puts in place, it comes down to personal behaviors. Well, then why bother putting in rules? I mean, it's crazy. It's like they're just all walking around in circles hoping someone figures out how to do this. And if you're a business caught in the middle of it, of the uncertainty, and then you're the one getting penalized because apparently no one cares about the rules and they don't get penalized anybody. I mean, is no one in charge at all? Is anyone willing to take charge? I find it just ridiculous that we're in this situation. I mean, I've got some ideas. I mean, maybe we should stop playing with the color-coded charts. And maybe we should actually get rapid testing. Maybe we should call out the Trudeau government and all the provinces should demand rapid testing on a wide scale. Maybe not rely on the piddly amount that's been ordered. Maybe we should try shutting those borders so that flights aren't coming in every day from Europe into, oh yeah, Peel region. You know, ramp up testing, tracing, I don't know, things that should have been done back in March. It would be nice if they could start soon because we're only nine months in. And then maybe stop asking you know, people politely, we're asking it, just don't hold a wedding, okay? Please try to follow the rules if you can. No, get one clear message and make it very clear so that people understand you know, stop making this up as you go along, because it is great that a vaccine might be close, but it is very clear it is not coming today or tomorrow or a couple of months. We're at least six to 12 months away from that. And we are going to pay a very, very dear price for this wishy-washy pass the buck approach that just kind of seems to be a thing that we accept. It's I find it really bizarre. Good to have you on this Monday night. And, uh, you know, one thing we can say, I think, with certainty is that the United States is not united. In fact, it is as uh, divided a country as we've ever seen. You've got half the country now thrilled and dancing in the streets because they got who they wanted. And then you've got the whole other half of the country feeling kind of cheated and feel like their needs and wants and their voice don't really matter. 
And we didn't see those mass riots on the streets by Trump supporters, as we were told would happen. It doesn't mean, however, that uh, a Biden win changes anything because he can say what he wants about uniting the country. But given half the country who cast votes, we're talking 70 million people, were called racists and cast as deplorables and dumb people, I think it's going to be, it's going to take a lot more than just political spin to bring the United States back together. And as my next guest writes, quote, it may be a new day, but it's the same tune when it comes to the continued fleecing of the poor, working and middle class and the unending wars that enrich the military financial complex. Theodos Fikramariam joining me now with Guion Journal. And it has been a very long time between conversations. And, and I and I have ignored you about Donald Trump and American politics uh, for the last couple of years because you just couldn't talk about it without getting yelled at one way or another. Right. No, I mean, that that's just how polarized uh, politics has become. Um you know, one of the things I enjoy about our conversations is that you and I might not necessarily agree 100 percent on everything, uh, but yet we're still able to have, you know, civil uh, discussions and fruitful discussions, you know, and, and at the end of the day, we might even be able to learn stuff from each other. And, and so that is why you, you're supposed to talk to people that don't 100 percent agree with you, because the, the outlooks that you have today might change. And, and if you only talk to the people that only think just like you, you never learn anything. You just, you, you end up uh, in a state of inertia. Um, and so that that's precisely what has become of our politics here in America. Uh, you have, you know, goose being sliced and diced into, into, into the ghettos of identity uh, is all I could describe it as. Uh, and then uh, there's demagogues that are propped up to, to incite those respective groups and it makes conversations uh, impossible. Uh, and all you end up with is, is, is fiery anger. Uh, and what, what, the, you know, what, what the various sides don't understand is that ultimately, if you remove the labels, if you remove the ideologies, if you uh, remove the, the, the brands that we've been given, most people want the same things. You know, we, we want uh, a fair shot in life to, to, to be able to, uh, to give to our children a better uh, opportunity than one we had um, to, you know, to be able to, to work uh, and, and uh, take care of ourselves. These are pretty much almost a universal aspirations, but politics gets in the way and, and we end up fighting each other instead of reaching across the divides and actually working to make sure that we get what we, what we're looking for. Yeah, and you live right in the heart of Washington, so this, you're surrounded by it. For me, I just uh, there's so much going on in Canada that I focus on that because to, to talk about Donald Trump, and I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, um, but if I say anything positive about policy he's done or to give credit where it's due, you would be. I I, I don't even think you'd be shocked. But I mean, the the oh, yeah. the anger and the things that people say is so venomous that I just said, you know what, right. not talking about it because it's not worth. Right. Uh, it's not worth what you go through to try to have this conversation because once upon a time, as you well know, we could have these conversations. You could certainly have these conversations when George W. Bush was in power. And God, I almost miss those days. But in the last few years, politicians, not just in your country, but in this country, they've used identity politics to divide and stifle and shut down debate. The second you disagree with someone on the other side, you're a racist. And so, you know, and, and by the way, that, that, that term uh, identity um, politics 
people kind of view it only in one way. Uh, and most of the time it's viewed as, well, it's only the people on the left doing that, or it's only uh, minorities doing that. No, identity politics is being done to everybody, whether it's you're, you're white, black, and I, I hate those terms because I, I know exactly the intentions behind those, those labels that don't even apply to us as human beings. Uh, but that being said, whether, whatever you, you identify with, identity politics is, is making sure that your group is, is incited and your grievance is, is agitated and that you don't listen to somebody else that's going through the same struggles. Right. And so I understand, uh, very, you know, different people will go through different pains and I'm not trying to minimize the pains of racism or the pains of, of sexism, but ultimately there's also a, a foundation to where most people are kind of struggling. And, and that is economic, uh, uh, I don't know what else to call it. It's economic repression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the gap between the very wealthy and the rest of us has exploded and it keeps exploding year after year. Uh, there was a time where if you graduate from college or even back in the, you know, a long time ago, if you graduate from high school, you're, you know, you pretty much guaranteed to get a good job and then you can retire at that job. These days, that's not the case. There's, there's kids that are going to college and they move right back into their parents' house. Um, and, and college, they're a barista at Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, And a college degree has almost become worthless in terms of being able to get a job that that, you, that will be able to take care of not only you, but if you uh, have a family. So these economic stressors are really what is at the root of everyone's anger. But, you know, we're, we're, well, we're still, and, and I think on the flip side, too, that's exactly why we're being incited uh, along these, uh, these uh, racial and, and um, ideological and, and, you know, all these various identities. Because as long as we're fighting each other, then we can never understand where the, where the sources of injustice are or, or the sources of inequalities are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I saw a picture the other day. It kind of blew my mind. There was a picture that I saw of Fred Hampton, who was the founder of the Black Panther Party, mm. working side by side with uh, the Proud Boys, and there was a Confederate flag above them. And that what, what Fred Hampton was trying to do, and no one could call Fred Hampton a sellout. <laughs> I mean, he was one of the icons of the Black Panther Party that was working to try to, you know, uh, help the, 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 the black community during the, the days of the segregation and to, to, towards self-empowerment. But he realized that unless the poor blacks and poor whites got together and worked together, they're always going to be fighting each other. This is the same story that's been going on since the Civil War. Um, except, you know, <laughs> when he tried to do that, it was not too long after that he was he was dead, and Martin Luther King tried to do the same thing. He tried to unite, uh, you know, the, the the last campaign that he had was the working the poor uh, people's campaign uh, when he went to Tennessee. In fact, when he got assassinated, he was there to to organize uh, poor whites and poor blacks who were uh, striking sanitation uh, sanitation workers. Um, of course, he was gone. Malcolm X came to that same realization. He realized it wasn't necessarily as much about. Uh, race as it was about the the ha- uh, the has versus the have nots, mm-hmm. um, and so in their place, the, these folks that were trying to talk about the need for unifying were pretty much silenced. And what we have instead are demagogues that incite us viscerally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know Trump in that way was just a manifestation of that. He was doing to to his base, which is by the way an insult to be called somebody's base, but he was doing to his base what Jesse Jackson was doing to his base. <laughs> let, let me ask, let me ask you this. 
Right. Well, let me ask you this just before I let you go. Um, sure. The bottom line is 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. They're not all racist and they're not all dumb. Right. And so when jo- right. Joe Biden says, you know, my job is to unite this country, uh, how does he do that? And do you think it's achievable? Well, so on the latest article that I wrote, I, I noted that the vast majority of people that voted for Trump are not racist. They did that because he was he they felt like he was giving them a voice to their concerns. Um, and so, like I said, when people feel like they're being marginalized and whether or not we believe a, we believe that somebody's being marginalized. Again, if, if, if the vast majority of, uh, of, of Americans are going to sleep at night uh, anxious about uh, their, their, their future, then that is a part of being marginalized if you can't take mm-hmm. care of yourself uh, economically. But that's being said, uh, Joe Biden, if he was really serious about this, could actually come out tomorrow and say, hey, Trump supporters were not racist. Uh, they, 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 like everyone else in this country, for too long, the, the voices of the working and, and the middle class and the poor have, have been stifled, and we need to come together as, as one people in order to fix these things. But he's not going to do that because he's going to depend – on the country being fractured in order to be able to get what he wants, which is yeah. continued yeah. fleecing of the middle class and the working class and, 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 and the continued shoveling of, of wealth towards the, the very few at the very top. Well, I have missed our conversations, and if I have to delve into this again, I'm going to call on you because we have always been able to have these rational conversations, and um, it's important because Canada and certainly the politicians in this country should, and I do hope that they learn something from what we have just witnessed. Teodros, I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk again. Thank you, Alex. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. That is Teodros Fikra uh, Mariam. I always uh, get his name wrong, with Gion Journal, and that's G H I. O-N journal. And yeah, we're politically very different, but I've always enjoyed his writing. I've always taken something from it and we are able to have conversations and take something from it. Very odd that. So we'll have him on again. Speak so that the microphones can pick you up. Do you understand? Yes. Okay. Are you suffering from any recent injuries? No. Are you suffering from any illnesses? Yes, I'm a murdering piece of shit. Well, that is the voice of Alec Manassian uh, minutes after he was taken into police custody. And uh, you pretty much heard what he said. And tomorrow marks the start of a trial that in any other time would be front page news across this country as long as the trial was uh, going on. But of course, everything gets sidelined by COVID-19 and the world's noise. And so it might not get as much attention as it gets. But tomorrow it starts. It'll be judge alone. And it'll be held on Zoom. And we already know Alec Manassian killed 10 people and maimed 16 others. He admitted it. You heard him admit it. And so this trial comes down to a crown that'll have to prove that Manassian was of sound mind and planned to kill these people versus a defense who's going to have to try to argue that he's not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder. So he's either going to get a decision that lands him in jail for the rest of his life or in a psychiatric hospital. Lauren Honickman is our legal expert here at Global News Radio and um, great judge on this case. So I feel like the case is in good hands. It's in Justice uh, Ann Malloy's hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a big challenge, though, for the defense because he has already told himself, as you would hear in, in, in recordings, that he is of sound mind. And he also called himself a murdering bag of bleep. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's no, I guess there was never a surprise um, 
after all of this first came out, when we first started hearing about what he was saying about what happened, that this was going to be a possible, that the defense was going to raise the defense that he is not criminally responsible. And of course, uh, this all now will hinge on his state of mind. And just to have everybody uh, remind everybody what that means um, is that it, basically what happens is it, if somebody commits a crime in this country but either didn't know they were doing something wrong or were not able to control their actions as a result of a mental disorder, they can raise the defense not criminally responsible. And and But it, it, it basically goes to, and this is what I think everybody has to understand, because we always, Alex, we always talk about, well, people who commit mass murders, so you always hear people saying, you know, by definition, they can't be, you know, of sound mind. Well, no, no, there's a whole different aspect here. In order to prove, and it's the defense that has to prove this on a balance of probabilities, that someone is not criminally responsible, they have to show that whatever act they committed they were suffering from a mental disorder. So there's your first part. They were suffering from a, a mental disorder that rendered them incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the act. And that's the important part. And so what ends up happening in these cases is it becomes uh, a lot of times the battle of experts, right? So yeah. you'll, he most certainly would have been assessed, I am certain, by more two or more uh, forensic psychiatrists who will be providing evidence at this trial. And, and y you know, you, you were playing before I came on um, part of the interview. And, of course, how he appears in the interview and what he says and what he does is, is going to have, of, of course, a certain part of, of, of the relevance as to the decision down the road. But he also would have been interviewed outside of that. This, these mm -hmm. aren't just psychiatrists who are going to say, oh, I, uh, yeah, I looked at the video of what he said, and this is my opinion. Obviously, right. it's going to go m much deeper than that. Um, yeah, you get the forensics, uh, you get the forensic, um, um, you know, psychiatrists in there and, and they'll have talked to him in the time since that arrest and they can talk to, well, that was his state of mind then, but this is his real state of mind. I mean, not criminally responsible, as you know, does not sit well with Canadians. But part right. of the defense, certainly for this case, will be if he had a disorder, maybe he was, uh, you know, there's been suggestions of Asperger's syndrome, autism spectrum. Um, and there are things that we don't know yet that the defense will um, will certainly provide. Um, but it is going to be very tough for Canadians to watch this. Um, and certainly for those, as you well know, who normally would, uh, the victims of these crimes, would be able to sit in court, would be able to face this man would be able to somehow uh, speak their mind and they don't get that in in this case no. and for a lot of them that will be a justice denied right because a lot of people feel that it's um if somebody's found not criminally responsible they've now gotten what's the old proverbial expression a get out of jail free card yeah right? you know oh you know they they've they've, they've got something on a technicality they're not being punished properly and 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 it's understandable i mean we've seen this uh, you and i have believe mm -hmm. it or not mm -hmm. talked about this several times through the years and we say we we had the high profile case in in toronto of the police officer um yes who was killed in um you know i'm getting i can't even remember the accused he killed a police officer and uh, yeah. his name will come to me and of course it'll be yeah, uh, like you yeah we've I had a couple of these <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but you know uh, 
these things, they're few and far between, but it happens. And, and what happens is, is that if a person is found not criminally responsible due to a, a mental disorder, Richard uh, they, they are sent, as you said, to a, a forensic psychiatric hospital. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not the same thing as being found not guilty. It's, it's actually a, a, a third option to the system. And, and there's a good reason for it, because as hard as it is for families totally understandable. We live in a society where we say we don't want to convict people who have a mental disorder and don't appreciate the nature and consequences, even though they've committed some terrible, terrible crime. And by the way, just so everybody also understands, it's not going to be the psychiatrist who decide this. The psychiatrists give their evidence, and based on their evidence, it's Justice Malloy that will make yeah. the final decision. So people have to understand, psychiatrists aren't making the decision. They're providing her the evidence. And, it's, and, and no doubt, Alex, what you just said, any judge, no matter how dispassionately they, they will go to their work, know uh, the case that they're dealing with. And Justice Malloy, like any judge uh, in her position, will know that this case, um, uh, you know, from when you look at the history of crime in, in our city, uh, in our country, uh, you know, this stands out in so many ways on that day back in April of 2018. Um, yeah, but she's, she, she is, as you know, and I've covered a number of her cases. She is a no-nonsense judge. I actually quite like uh, covering her case because she reads yeah. through BS, I think, better than most. And she'll call it when she sees it or right. hears it. Um, but like we've seen with Vincent Lee and then the Richard Kashkar, who we both forgot Richard, the name of. I mean, we there we go. You know, Thank those you. are high profile cases that when those kinds of decisions come out, it's just very difficult. And, and not just the decisions, but for people who are testifying, uh, those who are there that day, those who witnessed it, those who probably tried to save people's lives, they have to relive this. But they don't get the victim's support that they would normally get in an actual courtroom setting. And so right. even that part of the justice side of this has been denied to these victims. Yeah, there's a lot to that. And of course, you know, I think, though, there's got to be at least one solace, if you will, that that the pandemic put put off, you know, so many cases or whatever. Uh, but at least this is going to be heard now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and, and it's not just, you know, sitting out there in the ether. Uh, a lot of people will say, you know, this is like two and a half years since the offense. Um, that's not out of the ordinary, right, for trials mm-hmm. in our country, especially something as 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 complex as this case as this case could be. And of course, there are there are so many other parts to this, right? You know, there's the issue with respect to his mental state and and all of that. And what will end up happening, of course, is is a lot of what people are going to have to relive again, especially those victim families and, oh, yeah. and, the, and, and to go through it again. And, and no doubt his, his, um, his interview with, uh, on the day when he's talking about and all those issues about incel and what that yeah. means and all of that's going to come out again. Um, and, and when he said, you know, one of the things that's so, you know, it's interesting, Alex, when how different things mean, you know, people, you know, We've all talked about this case so many times since then, and people have talked about when they watched the interview. And for me, it was one of the when he he said something to that officer. He said that he wanted to die a suicide by cop. Mm -hmm. Um, You remember when he can you can be heard shouting, "Shoot me, kill me." Mm 
and that officer, I think it was Lamb, if I remember his name, yep. you know, doesn't flinch, doesn't do anything. That part of that whole scenario, um, for me at the time saying, oh, this, you know, this is just somebody who, you know, I never thought to myself, you know, everything that was going to come out from it. I just, I, you know, you start making these conclusions and, and even somebody like me, where I try to say, I, I try to be as objective as possible, but I'm a human like everyone else. And so I sit back and say, okay, any conclusion I may have come to because of that one part of the entire scenario, I got to sit back and wait yeah, and hear what yeah. all the evidence is. Well, it'll be a fascinating case and a big one. Yeah. Uh, we will see the opening tomorrow. I appreciate your time on this, Lauren. Okay, thank you. Lauren Honickman joining us. We will have coverage of that, and it is something that I will watch, and it is in the hands of a very, very good judge, so I can give you that reassurance. Just now, we've heard that those documents have been, many of them have been destroyed. At the start of the meeting, we heard, um, we heard something new. And that's that Speaker Spotlight has destroyed all of the records of speaking engagements for the individuals named in the motion, the Prime Minister and his spouse, uh, for any period, um, any period outside of seven years. But what do you know? That's a big old dink, I think we say. And I'm sure it's all just a big old oopsie. But uh, that was Michael Barrett, and I saw that come across Twitter this afternoon, and I thought, what's this about? Well, there was yet another committee meeting today, and uh, these are the meetings that so far the Liberal MPs have um, filibustered and blocked for weeks. And back in the summer, this committee uh, had already legally ordered Speaker Spotlight to hand over documents, including speaking fees paid to anyone in the Trudeau family, including the Prime Minister, who, as an MP, charged $1.3 million in speaking fees from school boards, contractors, even charities. We're talking about a guy who is making $180,000, who's already quite wealthy independently, charging charities. It's not a great look, if you ask me, but nonetheless. And now all of a sudden, months after these documents were legally told they got to be delivered, and then, of course, the Liberal government prorogued government because they were so busy focusing on Canadians, and now we're back, and now these documents somehow fell into a paper shredder or something. I mean, really? Michael Barrett is the ethics critic. He joins us now. Good to have you, Mr. Barrett. Thanks for having me on. Um, explain to us the obligation of, um, let's say, what well, we're talking about Speaker Spotlight, but anybody like Speaker Spotlight, once you're ordered by a committee uh, to hand over legal documentation, what is their obligation? The obligation is to do just that. It's to, it's to produce the documents that have been ordered uh, by a parliamentary committee. And so the, the powers of, of Parliament to uh, for the production of documents is, um, it, it's basically, it, it's absolute. And so uh, any organization that's ordered to produce the documents um, has to do that. Um, usually it's, it's characterized uh, as a, you know, perhaps as a request and uh, just as we make requests for individuals to appear, and should an individual uh, not um, not respond positively to the request, should an organization not respond positively to, for a request for documents, the committee has to make a decision then to order or demand an appearance or demand documents. And so um, the, in the context of, of this summer, 
the documents were requested uh, from from the organization. They requested an extension. The committee granted an extension, and on the eve uh, of their arrival at committee, um, as you said, Justin Trudeau uh, shut down uh, Parliament and uh, locked the doors on committees and also uh, uh, eliminated the all of the orders of committees, including the order for those documents to arrive hours later. But that does not mean that Speaker Spotlight or any other organization then gets a free pass and it goes away. I mean, they're under legal obligation to provide um, what what has been asked of them. And what is the penalty then if they don't? Uh, well, there could be a contempt, um, a, a finding of contempt uh, by Canada's parliament against uh, against an, an organization or or an individual, and you know, depending on uh, depending on the situation, if if the matter later finds itself uh, in in any kind of criminal proceeding, uh, then there's certainly well documented um, well documented evidence around uh, the conduct of everyone involved. And so, um, in 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 this case, um, it's. Uh, it's 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 frustrating, I think, for people who have been following the story. Many many Canadians have, and it's frustrating for members who who are debating this issue and who are um, who are looking to have uh, these documents um, ordered, uh, and then to hear that um, several years worth are you know the revelation coming that several years worth are are no longer uh, available um, that they've been purged is 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 concerning. Well, it's a bit more than concerning. I mean, um, I think Conrad Black made some files disappear and he ended up in prison for a number of years, but it certainly speaks to the fact that this government or this prime minister does not want whatever's in those speaking fee documents to get out there. And so how did you learn that they had been uh, destroyed? And I mean, what was the reaction of those on the committee? Well, at the start of the uh, committee today, we heard from the chair that the clerk had been advised by the organization um, that uh, that this was the case that that you know in in there's been ongoing communication uh, you know the documents are ready uh, you know on a day's notice and um, and the documents are in you know are, are in such and such a format and this these conversations have happened uh, since August and there was this revelation this morning and. And this isn't like we've had one meeting about it. You know, this committee has been filibustered for 30 hours since since Parliament resumed after the the cover up shutdown, the cover up prorogation. And so you say that obviously the Prime Minister doesn't want what's in these documents to come out. Um, truer words have never been spoken, Alex. The same is true with the redacted uh, documents yeah. from government. It's they're going to incredible, incredible length. You know, this government has a table to budget in a period longer than any government uh, in in history. Um, and I stand to be corrected, but uh, I don't think that I will be on that, any Canadian government. And, uh, and the, the Liberals are filibustering the Finance Committee. They're not even, they're not even calling witnesses to do a, a pre-budget consultation. So they're prepared to, to just walk through to the next election without ever having consulted Canadians on, on their massive, uh, massive spending because they refuse, they refuse to allow Canadians to see what's in the document set that that committee has legally ordered and were illegally redacted by uh, agents of the government. And they're also uh, 
kind of obstructing the health committee from getting Patty Haidu in front of it because, of course, she doesn't want to have to explain anything either. And so, look, he did say he likes a basic dictatorship. Uh, maybe this is what one looks like to him. The bottom line is, though, um, you know, these documents were supposed to go in front of you. Now what happens? I, I, what is it that you were looking for specifically and where does it go from here now? So the, the purpose for ordering these documents has been that uh, throughout this process, we've heard different tales from the key players. First, we were told that uh, by PMO, that a PMO spokesperson, members of the Trudeau family were never paid by the WE organization. Because remember, Alex, this all goes back to WE. WE yeah. paying, the WE organization paying half a million dollars to members of the prime minister's family and then mm-hmm. the prime minister giving that organization half a billion dollars. So at first we were told they were paid nothing. Then we were told they were paid, you know, uh, just for a couple of, of appearances. Then we were told that it totaled out nearly half a million dollars. So we need some corroboration. We have ministers coming and saying one thing and then documents demonstrating that another is true. So we need corroboration. We need more. Uh, we need evidence. And we need to find out uh, what the truth is for Canadians. We're talking about very consequential amounts of money. We're talking about a billion dollars uh, that was allocated for, for the, this program, the Canada Student Service Grant, that that never launched. So um, these are really serious questions, and we're going to continue to pursue it. The Liberals are going to continue to attempt to filibuster us at committee, and we will continue to pursue answers for Canadians and, and bring uh, the truth to light by whatever means we can. And will Speaker Spotlight then be called uh, in front of uh, the committee? Uh, so there's a motion being debated by the committee that includes a representative testifying from from Speaker Spotlight. And at this point, I think that uh, that giving everyone the opportunity to get on the record with uh, the 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 um, the order of events, well, you know what what documents uh, were in their possession when uh, and when they weren't. Uh, I think that that's that's a that's a tremendous opportunity for the confidence that Canadians have. At the end of the day, this comes down to Canadians being able to have confidence in their democratic institutions, knowing that rules have been followed, and when they aren't followed, that people are held to account for that. And so, um, so we, we need fulsome, uh, we, need, we need to see uh, whatever documents um, uh, still exist, and we need to uh, hear testimony from, uh, from the players that, that, that hold those documents or are named in them. Well, I get the sense that they think the long game of blocking and blocking and obstructing will buy them the time that they need to make sure nothing comes out before the next election. And so uh, opposition and and, and, uh, the NDP, as I recall, uh, didn't support the motion to have these uh, documentation um, brought forward, which made it harder to get them brought forward. Did that move of them blocking um, that particular part of this uh, cost the documentation and, and Charlie Angus and those were they were they maybe a little regretful as, as of today now that the documentation seems to be gone? Well, I, I think that uh, you know the the different the different uh, methods that members have tried to have tried to employ to to get to get us across the goal line on any part of this. You know, I can't speak to. I can't speak to their headspace when they made those decisions, and mm-hmm. of course there was the the fumble that the 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 block substitute mm-hmm. made. We had a we had a, a block member who was in committee for for something like nineteen and a half hours, and she got a substitute for twelve minutes, and the vote was called, and her substitute, uh, we're told, accidentally voted the wrong way. Uh, and so, uh, my goodness, what a, what a very costly mistake. Uh, to make and uh, and now we're now we're back in the thick of it uh, fighting to get those documents and and really the committee the, the committee filibuster from uh, from the liberals is 
Uh, it's jaw-dropping. It's mind-numbing. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing for those members. And, uh, um, and while they continue to put themselves on the record uh, filibustering uh, you know, to, to, to further a cover-up, um, we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, keep fighting to get the truth. And we will stay tuned. Michael Barrett, I appreciate your time on this. Thanks, Alex. Mr. Barrett's the uh, ethics critic. I would say it's obnoxious and it is arrogant. And as long as they're allowed to get away with it, they will. And it's our job to make sure that they're held to account. And I will make sure because guess what? I'm not obsessed with Donald Trump and I don't cover Donald Trump because I cover stuff that matters to Canadians. By the way, if you do miss the show, don't worry. You can load uh, it up by going to 640 Toronto. Search On Point in your favorite podcast app and that will get you what you need to know for the day. we got Blacklocks reporting, but of course, coming in uh, at uh, 846 they also have been looking into the we stuff as well as the speaking engagement stuff and uh it's shady all right you can call it sunny ways it is shady 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 if you got nothing to hide and you're transparent put it out there all right of course you can join us monday through friday 6 30 sharp through 10 i'm alex pearson on point and this is global news radio